Today on episode 110 of Teaching in Higher Ed, Robert Talbert talks about self-regulated learning and the flipped classroom. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I am Bonnie Stahovia, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to increase our personal productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. I'm thrilled today to be welcoming to the show Dr. Robert Talbert. He's an associate professor in the mathematics department at Grand Valley State University. That's out in Michigan. And he teaches courses mainly for computer scientists, discrete structures, linear algebra, cryptography. And he also teaches his department's online calculus course in the summers. Robert, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thanks, Bonnie. Thanks for having me on. We're going to start out this episode with something a little bit personal. Tell me about how you view your role as a dad and how that connects with you looking at the profession of teaching. Well, I'm really glad you asked that question. My view about teaching changed completely when I started having kids. It was 12 years ago, and I've been teaching for about seven or eight years already. And, you know, bringing up my kids, I have three kids, they're seven, 10, and 12 now. And when they were babies, my, my oldest two were adopted, and so they came with some special needs. And my youngest is a surprise biological baby, so he started off as an infant. And I began to really see what human development really looks like through their eyes and kind of there's sort of a now and a not yet aspect to parenting, I found out. And there's the now. I mean, there's like the immediate needs that you have to take care of when you're a dad. But there's also this long view that you have to take. Like eventually, you know, my son Harrison was just a baby. You know, he's, he's I got to change his diaper, got to feed him and stuff like that. But eventually he's going to have to be able to feed himself. Uh, eventually he's going to have to be able to go to the bathroom by himself, speak a language, walk ride a bicycle, go to school, and that kind of thing. And every single day, you know, I realize I have to kind of be working on both things at the same time, but what's happening now and what's coming in the future. And, you know, I, I began to very clearly imprint that upon my teaching, too, because although my students aren't children, I mean, they're adults. They're 18 years old, so they're, like, very young adults. But they're still adults. You know, in four or five years' time, they're going to be out on their own. They're going to be trying to get careers and changing the world and stuff like that. And, you know, golly, I mean, my, my job is not just to sort of shove content into them, but, but to train them to be productive and, and gracious and caring and loving human beings who can make a difference in the world. And, like, to what extent am I doing that in the classroom? <laughs> and I kind of began to realize that that sort of forward-looking uh, progress for my students is way more important than the actual mathematics that I'm teaching. I mean, they may or may not use calculus or linear algebra, but they will absolutely be in a position to help people or to make a difference. And I gotta not only be teaching them calculus and linear algebra, I also have to get them ready for what's coming in the future just to be a viable human being. I, I kind of view the, the roles to be very similar to each other, although the, the audiences obviously aren't exactly the same and there's rules for families that don't apply to students. But uh, yeah, I mean, I'm looking towards the future for these students as well. And I think that's what informs a great deal of my pedagogy these days. 
I was telling you over Slack that my four and a half year old son now knows more about space than I do. And <laughs> it may have sounded like I was exaggerating, but I was not. <laughs> and it's one of those things, though, when I think about how our children might change our approach to teaching is just this complete different lens that I can put on of I can still be a teacher about space for him, even though he literally knows more than I do. Because there's all these different resources that I might expose him to when we think about books that we might check out from the library, or we think about movies we might go to see, or walks that we take at night. It just allows me to put on a lens where I don't have to know everything there is to provide some sort of the role of teaching for him. Did any of that come up for you as you parented more and, and then thought about that in your relation to your teaching? Oh, absolutely. Especially these days. And my oldest is 12 and she's in middle school right now. So she's taking some courses that she's getting to the point in her school and some courses where I really struggle, like taking chemistry, for example. I was never very good at chemistry. I wish I wish I knew it. I probably if I went to it now, I'd be better than when I was in high school. But she's got more sort of knowledge about chemistry than I do. But I know a little bit more about just how to learn than she does because she's still a real novice to this. And so I kind of feel like when she brings things, she doesn't have a lot of homework, but when she brings home things to do, you know, my job is to sort of coach, to guide, to give her some tips and tricks, to teach her how to recognize what's going on in her brain with her emotions, with her physical space, with her use of time. And, you know, I, I think, you know, I get a lot better at chemistry because I learned a lot of chemistry as a result. I'm sure you learn a lot about space that you never knew before. I think for you and me, there's just this natural curiosity that has stayed with us. And, and many people would call that lifelong learning. But I know that you use a different term and many, many experts in education use a different term called self-regulated learning. What can you tell me about that? Sure. So self-regulated learning is a process of learning where students are, are taking initiative to monitor what they're doing and making changes when necessary. And it involves certain kinds of knowledge all working in concert with each other. One of those kinds of knowledge is strategic knowledge, which is knowledge about the strategies that you have for learning, what works well when you're studying, for example. Uh, how you monitor your behavior. You know, like when you're in high school, you often figure these things out on your own, but sometimes people don't. You know, sometimes people figure out that, oh, if I if I take notes, I remember things better. If I take notes with my hands, I remember things better. So knowing things about how to study is one thing. Another kind of knowledge that's involved in self-regulated learning is just knowledge about how cognition works, like how to read the instructions for a task, just on a very basic level, uh, knowing how to assess for yourself when you see an assignment how hard it's going to be and how long it's going to take, rather than waiting for somebody else to tell you this. Another kind of knowledge is self-knowledge, uh, knowing your own strengths, knowing your weaknesses, knowing how to interpret your emotional states when you're learning, knowing how to uh, judge you know, how uh, efficient and efficacious you're going to be when you're studying and that sort of thing. So it involves all this comprehensive knowledge of not only the learning process, but also knowledge about yourself, knowledge about your environment. And it also involves a little bit of initiative taking, I would say. You not only know about these things, but you take charge to make changes and do things in a certain way based on that knowledge. So, you know, for me, when we talk about lifelong learning, you look at a lifelong learner that's really effective at that, then you're looking at a self-regulated learner, you know, as opposed to someone who kind of needs people to tell them what to do all the time. That would be sort of the opposite of a self-regulating learner. And I would imagine that it's probably specific to a type of learning. I mentioned that... <laughs> 
four and a half year old. I re- I'm so embarrassed to admit it, but it's all about the authenticity of. <laughs> so the four and a half year old knowing more about space that is certainly not by accident, correct? That that would mean that I was not a self regulated learner for pretty much my entire existence as I can recall it. But that that now it's never it, it's never over. Like I could start today. No. And be a self-regulated learner in that particular context, right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, uh, you know, if you, if you look into the literature, it's, this is a, this is an idea that's been around the psychology literature for over two or three decades, and you know, some formulations of this idea kind of put it in a two-dimensional axis where you have phases of self-regulation and areas of self-regulation. Like some of those areas are things that I mentioned, like your affect, your cognitive strategies, and so forth. And phases have to do with is it sort of before, during, and after the learning process, and I I think all of us self-regulate at least some of the time. Some people self-regulate seemingly all of the time. In education, I think the trick is to kind of teach this and model the process. So, I mean, I think your, your four-year-old is probably self-regulating on very well on some levels and not so well on other levels. And the same is true for you. And so the two of you come together and that's where the magic happens. What's an area of self-regulated learning that you find yourself most challenged with that you're always kind of working on? Oh, that's a really good question. I would have to say it's, I would have to say really it's affect. I mean, sometimes I'll be learning something or working on something. Like I'm working on a book right now and it involves a lot of sort of learning new things in new areas like cognitive psychology that I haven't touched since I was in college. And I will get into it and I'll find myself getting bored or I'll find myself feeling like I'm over my head. That's going to take too much time. And I, I struggle a lot with converting these feelings of sort of unmotivation, you could say, and say, okay, I, I'm not, I'm feeling un- a self-regulated learner would turn around and say, all right, I'm feeling unmotivated. What do I do about it? <laughs> Sometimes the answer is I put it down and go take a break. Sometimes the answer is, you know, I, I just sit back and take a breath and just make myself do it. But I, I struggle sometimes with knowing exactly what the best thing to do in the moment is. That's, that's, a, that's a really key aspect of self-regulated learning is knowing how to, how to manage these rough spots, whether it's cognitive, affective, or whatever. I mentioned to you being a little bit intimidated always when I have guests on the show, such as yourself, that are from the <laughs> STEM fields. Which and is I, crazy, but go ahead. <laughs> and I loved coming across this article that you wrote about optimization problems in calculus because I thought, oh my gosh. I actually know what that is. I don't know how to, I don't necessarily, like <laughs> yeah, exactly. I thought like, I don't know exactly how you know, the ins and outs of it all, but, but I, it did make me think that this is something open to all of us, I guess. So I'm curious to you, what are some of the characteristics that a self-regulated learner might use to approach a complex topic like optimization problems and calculus? Well, you know, the first thing they would do is uh, just sort of go into a planning phase, a planning phase and things like my affect, for example, like, do I understand what the words mean? Okay, optimization. Okay, well, it has something to do with making things as best as they can, I guess, you know, and calculus has a really specific meaning. And so, you know, just planning out, do I know what the words mean? How how good am I at optimization? <laughs> if, for example, you're in the middle of a lesson and you've learned about optimization through classwork and now you're working on homework, you would sit, plan for that homework by saying, okay, what do I and don't I know about what we did in class? Okay, where do I need to review my notes? Where do I need to go watch YouTube? Where do I need to go to the professor's office and do some practice problems? Do I need to find some practice problems? If so, where can I go to find practice problems? And who can I ask about where to go to find practice problems? There's all this sort of pre-planning phase that happens first, okay? 
even things like planning out where you are going to study. You know, for example, in my calculus course, students do homework online. If you are living in uh, one of these crappy apartments near campus <laughs> and the internet's bad and you have to be online, then you need to plan this out ahead of time. So, I mean, that's, that's one thing a self-regulated learner does. And then you move into this phase where you're beginning to work on these things. You've done the planning. Now you're working ahead and you're, some things are going well and some things are going poorly. And you pay attention to the things that are going well and ask yourself, why are they going so well? And, and what am I doing that's so effective and why is it effective? And likewise, you look at the things that aren't going so well and you try to interpret them, manage them, tell yourself to take a break if you need to, come back to it tomorrow and that sort of thing. And eventually, you know, hopefully a student will work through this thing on optimization problems and successfully complete the assignment or the study session or whatever. And there's a looking backward phase where student looks back and says, okay, what did I do that was good? What did I do that wasn't so good? And what am I going to do to make it better the next time? So if you look at that totality of the experience and all those phases and all those areas, that's kind of what self-regulated learning would look like for a person studying that one thing. We both talked about before I hit the record button, not wanting this to be a show of definitions. And by the way, I think so far we have definitely lived up to our promise, <laughs> but I would like you to... Definition, I do like, def I do like my definitions. <laughs> well, I'm going to ask you to give me one now because this next term is means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. How do you define flipped learning? Okay, so flipped learning is a pedagogical technique where students encounter concepts for the first time, new concepts for the first time, not in class, but prior to class in their individual spaces through some structured sort of activities, whether that's reading or viewing or or game playing or experimentation or whatever. They're encountering new ideas for the first time individually kind of on their own, maybe with a small group, informal group. And so it takes the first contact experience out of the class group space, which is usually done through a lecture. Having taken that experience out of the group space, there is therefore a lot more time and space in that group space. And so you turn that group space into an active and dynamic space for learning and experimentation where students are working on the, the, the top level cognitive tasks where we're all together with the professor. So it's called flipped learning because it's reversing the context that you usually see where class time, group space is spent getting first contact with things and then the sort of the hard stuff, the high level cognitive tasks is farmed out to students to do on their own. And what do you see as some of the most common ways that people either maybe misunderstand what flip learning should be or could be, or maybe they just don't align with your definition of it? So the number one misconception, I think by far, that I've heard is that flip learning is where you give students readings before class and then you have discussion during class. And I get this a lot because people will say, well, isn't it something like the Oxford tutorial method flip learning? Haven't we really been doing flip learning since, you know, like the 15th century? And why is this a new thing? Uh, the, the difference between simply giving things to do before class and having discussion in class is structure. Okay, so if we simply just kick students off the deep end or into the deep end of the pool and then expect them to produce in class, that's flipping the classroom and it's not flipping the learning because students aren't given any structure as to how to handle themselves. They're not learning how to self-regulate, honestly. So there's a really close connection between flipped learning and self-regulated learning and that in flipped learning, what we're really trying to do is be intentional about putting students in a position day after day after day where they are practicing self-regulated learning skills by encountering new concepts and making sense of them on their own prior to class. 
This brings up a topic that <clears throat> I've been just wrestling with because I took a class from the hybrid pedagogy group. And yeah. one of the real tensions, I think it's healthy, is just this around my desire to track things and their desire to say, stop trying to track things, just let people explore. And I'm not even doing justice at all to our, <laughs> to our ongoing conversations in this, but, but I wonder where you stand on that in the sense of I do find it helpful, or maybe I'm, I'm misguided, but it seems like it has been helpful in my teaching to have some sort of accountability around this flipped learning model. But am I just building in then, are they doing it because quote unquote, somebody's checking on it and, and maybe I'm, I'm negating their ability to develop self-regulated learning or do you find that a little bit of accountability helps? I think a, a little bit of accountability does help and I think it's okay and not necessarily destructive to more exploratory learning types of environments to have some guideposts set up just to kind of indicate that you are where you're supposed to be. I mean, there's a time and a place for students to sort of pick freely sort of the Montessori approach to education, I guess. But in higher education, too, I mean, there are certain guideposts. We don't want to just let it be a free-for-all either. So I think it's okay, and it's not destructive learning process, to have some simple mile markers set up to let you know where you are. And if you choose to get off the beaten path to explore a, a tangent that happens to come up, then you know where to get back on the path when it's time. It's not always okay just to stray off the path, right? There's a, certain things that we do need to accomplish and certain objectives that we do set up for our classes in college and university education. And this is just sort of a, having a mild way of making sure that we're there, I think is, uh, is helpful for everybody. Could you give an example from one of your courses where you are having these guideposts and maybe what they look like, and then maybe an example where the exercise itself is set up to pique the curiosity and we can explore and, and where, wherever people might, might go is, is their own choice? Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, this, this actually happens a lot in mathematics, which is kind of goes against people's intuition about mathematics is one of the great misconceptions about my discipline is that you know, there's, it's only about one right answer to a problem, and the idea is to get the right answer as quickly and as error-free as possible. And in fact, you know, math is a highly creative discipline. So we have these uh, courses sometimes. Like I teach a course called Discrete Structures for Computer Science. It's a math course for computer scientists to teach them some, some of the basic mathematical language of their discipline. And I'll have students working in groups. It's a flipped uh, learning environment. So students are reading up about things like graphs and trees and, and relations and so forth before class. And then coming in and they'll have them work on a problem. Like if I give you a, a, you know, a certain graph, you know, how, how, what's the relationship between the number of edges that it has and the number of nodes that it has? Just kind of an open-ended question. And there could be a right answer to this. There could be a definite relationship that we're looking for. But the way that students come up with explanations for this can be all over the place. And many, many times, I know I've had, uh, you know, one thing in my mind where I expect students to kind of lock in on this one algorithm for answering this one question. And students will come up with something so totally off the wall different that I really have to sort of step back and think, are they, am I just being stupid or are they actually right? <laughs> Maybe both. <laughs> I don't know. And so there's ways to kind of keep on the track to kind of finally discover this one basic fact about graphs that I want them to discover, but many, many different paths in which to take to get there, I would say. And so this happens like all the time in classes, seriously. I mean, it's uh, almost every day that we're interacting. 
And then what would be an example where you do have those guideposts, you do have that accountability that you're able to really determine whether or not someone participated in the flipped learning? Sure. You know, in, in the way that I structure things, I have this model for the individual space or pre-class. Not all my classes are, are face-to-face. I teach an online class, so it's difficult to talk about pre-class because we don't actually meet at all, but I'll leave that for another podcast. <laughs> I have this model for pre-class activity called guided practice, and it's a just a kind of a, a, a structure that I use that gives students adequate structure to do these initial explorations on their own without a lot of grief. And uh, they watch some video, they have a they re- do some reading. Sometimes I'll have a computer simulation set up for them to play with, and they have to answer questions about these things. Sometimes they're computational questions, sometimes they're conceptual, and they do have to answer them. I don't grade them on correctness, though. I just want to know what they think, and they submit the results of these guided practice activities through Google Form, and so I can pull up that Google Form beforehand, and I'm grading it on the basis of, was it turned in on time, did you give a good faith effort, and did you give an answer to everything? And if you do that, these are graded pass-fail, so I just grade them in the pass if they do all these three things. Very often, students are getting the right answers on these things. Quite often, they don't, but at least I'll know the patterns of the misconceptions. Okay, So there's an accountability in place. The accountability is not to give the right answer, but to simply show me that you're making progress towards some of these basic learning objectives that we have set up. And that's what the guided practice exercise were aimed at. So it's a real easy to handle bit of accountability for students to, you do have to engage in the material. You do have to get into the, the reading and the viewing and whatever else. You do have to answer some questions, but you don't have to be right. <laughs> you just have to be in the in the ball game, as it were. Do you know that they actually watch the video, or is that not being tracked? Uh, that does not track whatsoever. All I give them is resources. Okay, so I don't really care what they use or what they don't use. They may do all of it, none of it, some of it. They may augment with other things that they have. I know for a fact that one of my students hates the book that we're using, so she's using her roommate's book. <laughs> it's like, okay, I don't care. I mean, all I care about is are you uh, are you showing progress towards the basic learning objectives? However you do that is up to you. So I give students a lot of choice. And that, too, is kind of a self-regulatory thing. Like, if you're a self-regulating learner, you know what you need to learn, and you have the choice to pick how you learn it. That's, that's a hallmark of self-regulated learning, and that's definitely intentionally why I structure those activities that way. You used the word bake in one of your articles in reference to <laughs> baking self-regulated learning into courses, and I loved that, but I didn't want to use the word without crediting my source. How do we bake self-regulated <laughs> learning into our courses? Well, it's like you bake anything else. You fold it into the ingredients. I mean, uh, so when you're, when you're building the course, when you're building the design of a course from the very get-go, you're asking yourself things like, who are my students? What are their needs? Where are they coming from? What are their class levels? Where are the majors? And things like that. And right there off the bat, as soon as you start looking at the situational statistics, the demographics of your course, you're realizing, just like we mentioned at the top of the show, you know, you look at your kids when you're parenting them and you think there's a now and a not yet. You're like, I've got to teach my students computer science, but I also have to teach them how to be individuals who can learn whatever they need to learn later on down the road. So, you know, when I think about the learning goals that I have for the class, right in the very beginning when I'm laying the ingredients out, I have to think about one of those goals has to be something like self-regulated learning, some little glacier-like incremental progress toward being a self-regulated learner. I have to have that as a goal. I've got to be clear about it. I've got to be intentional about it. I have to assess it. I have to give assignments that require it. I have to get students thinking about it in explicit terms. I have to reward it when it happens, and I have to penalize it when it doesn't happen. (laughs) And so 
this is just part of the DNA of the course. Like I said, just like anything else that you're baking, you have to pour, pour the ingredients in and set the right temperature. You have to put the put it into the course, into the code of the course, and make sure that it's well supported all throughout. Sometimes when we start using approaches like this, we run into the barrier that that is not what students are accustomed to from other classes they've taken <laughs> at our institution or at other institutions. Yeah, true. How do you then set up early in the class this notion that we have to unlearn the way things maybe have been structured before? This is going to be a little different. Yeah, well, here's where the good news really happens, I think, with flip learning and self-regulated learning, is that all you have to unlearn is the last six years. <laughs> because the previous, the previous 12 years to 20 years for these students has been nothing but self-regulated learning, right? I mean, I, I, I compose it to my students like this. Like, if there's ever a question about what's going on or why we're doing things a certain way, I'll say, okay, stop and just for three minutes, write down what do you think the three most important things you have ever learned in your life are? And like, just go and don't hold anything back. And when the three minutes are up, I'll start asking the students and we'll get things like potty training, <laughs> okay? Learning how to go to the bathroom by yourself is a pretty important thing that you learn as part of your existence or eating with, a, learning how to feed yourself, learning how to speak your language, walking. I mean, we go really down to brass tacks here. Nobody says like, oh, well, trigonometry was the, one of the most important things I've ever learned <laughs> in my life. I mean, I love trigonometry and nobody ever says this. I wouldn't say that either. And so we get all this stuff out on the, on the, on the table. I put them on the board and I said, wow, man, you guys are so good at eating, at going to the bathroom, at walking, at speaking English. You must have had an amazing lecturer in those subjects. <laughs> And there's this dead silence, like, dude, we didn't have anybody lecture. I say, exactly, you didn't have to have anybody teaching you these things to learn them. Somehow, you have a native process that is just beautiful and intensely human that just drove you to these things. It was trial, it was error, it was learning, it was monitoring, and somehow you made it, and here you are. I mean, you're, you're, you're basically a viable adult. Now we just got to finish the job. And that's what that's what the university is for. We got to do it with these higher level learning skills. I mean, it's called higher education for a reason, right? It's, it's education about education. It's learning how to learn. I have another exercise that I give to students too. On the very first day of class, I always ask them, now, what do you think is the purpose of a university education? Like, why are we here? And almost every single time, every single group in the class will report back that learning how to learn is the most important aspect of a, of a university education. I said, you are exactly right about that. Now, how are we going to do that in this class? <laughs> and eventually, when I give them free reign to sort of design how this learning experience is going to work, it looks like what I have planned. <laughs> because I'm thinking the same thing, too. I'm thinking they're going to learn how to learn. The only way to do that is to be put in positions where you are learning how to learn and you have some coaching and guidance and support, but it's not just teaching yourself. I mean, there's, there's, some, there's some structure there, but you can't say that you are interested in teaching students how to learn and then spoon-feeding them everything and designing your course completely in the opposite direction. Derek Bruff introduced me to the idea of course trailers. He had a great post and I, I wrote a follow up to it. And so I decided to make a couple for my classes this fall. And I decided I to. I saw them actually. I watched them online. Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah. And I decided to go the easy way. I, I'm all about this. You post things on Twitter. It's there forever. Okay. So <laughs> I'm all about this lean startup idea. They're not like as good as the ones that Derek had used in his examples, but I use the, the 
the trailer templates that are in iMovie. Right. And I made right. one that was more, it looked like a romantic comedy type of feel. And then the <laughs> other one, my, uh, the gal that watches our kids said it looked like, uh, oh my gosh, super popular drama. Lots of people die. Haven't watched it yet. Game of Thrones? There we go. Okay. <laughs> I haven't so, watched it either, but that's super popular from where people die. Okay, Game of yes, Thrones. There we go. I, she tells Sorry. me that, that all the main characters, you can't get tied to anybody in that show. So I had originally posted it to Twitter and, and on the Slack it channel. That's way to start a course, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> what are you saying about my success in the course? I mean, go ahead. I, I had uh, originally the idea was to see which one of these I should actually use for the class. And I don't remember who it was who suggested it, but they said, put them both up there and let people decide. And I thought, well, that's kind of a little mini maybe introduction in the beginning of a class to say that you're going to have a lot more autonomy. You're going to have more agency in this class. This is going to be a place where you're not exactly directed step by step down every single path. And I thought that might be a small example of how to have early impressions in a class. Absolutely. And I think that makes a great first impression on the very first day, even possibly before the first day, that, you know, choice is a really important part of this class. And as long as you get that message across, then I think students are going to be pretty well disposed. You said something earlier in the episode about that being another podcast episode, and I hope that means you're coming back <laughs> before we Absolutely get to anytime. before we get to the recommendations part of the show. Though I would love to have you share a little bit about the book that you're re- reading, sure. <laughs> not the one you're reading. The <laughs> I one am reading it, and I'm also writing it actually. So <laughs> the yeah, one this, that you're writing. Is, uh, the, the working title of it is called "Flip Learning in the University: A User's Guide," and it is a uh, going to be, uh, whether I like it or not, sent in the publisher, uh, which is, is uh, Silas Publishing, uh, pretty pretty popular, uh, a lot of great books come out of there, I'm really honored, going to be part of their uh, their roster. It will be submitted in September, and I'm guessing, you know, after the, uh, the bloodletting has happened from the editors, and I've actually done it right by their eyes, it'll be out sometime in 2017. So this is a, this book is kind of a, a combination of a lot of things that I've been thinking and writing about with flip learning for the last five seven, eight, ten years, ever since I started. A lot of these uh, originated as blog posts from my blog, Casting Out Nines. Uh, some of them were, were parts of my workshops that I give sometimes. And I just thought it would be cool to have one place, one one document that combines all the things that I've been thinking about for a really long time about flip learning. So it's really a user's guide that if you're a newbie or an experienced practitioner or just somebody who's curious, you can get the book, pop it open, and somewhere inside that book is going to be something that will answer a question and raise a few more questions for you. I am seriously looking forward to reading it and also to continuing the conversation in 2017. That's amazing. It's going to be great. Yes, I'm looking forward to it. I'm really happy with the way it's turning out so far. We'll probably have a major changes, of course, after it's sent in. But uh, we're very, very pleased with the way it's turning out. And I think it's going to be, uh, hopefully it's going to be really useful and helpful for a lot of people. This is the time in the show where we each give some recommendations. And I wanted to share about my recommendation, which is called Clarify. And I need to first share that I find myself in a position doing something that I find absolutely mind numbing, and that is developing some self-guided workbooks for our faculty because we are switching over to a new learning management system in the fall. And they wanted me to do face-to-face training and sitting down for hours at a time telling someone step one, click here, step two, click here is not my idea of fun, nor is it my idea of how we learn best. And so I have ended up just creating where they can go more self-paced and then we have some games that we'll play in between to reinforce the learning and instead of having to do that in something like Microsoft Word Clarify is built out of the box to do it all for me I just go along and go through the steps 
and grab screenshots as I go. And I can have sequential steps where I can easily click and add numbers to the steps and add notes. It exports into everything imaginable, every kind of PDF, a full color one to black and white. You can even customize the output. You can export it to HTML. And one of the nice things that I loved is that I can actually export all the screenshots. So if I wanted to make a PowerPoint to go along with it or, or use some of the graphics, I don't have to go recreate those same screenshots outside of the program. So it's my recommendation for today. It's on both the Mac and a PC, and it's the best $30 I've probably ever spent on an application as far as time saving. That's Clarify. That sounds super cool. And what do you have to recommend today? Okay, so I have uh, many people who know me know that I'm kind of a, a real sort of, I won't say control freak, I will say control enthusiast about my time and my tasks. And I try to keep a tight lock on my productivity. And so I want to share my top five productivity tools just very quickly here. That I, I practice a, uh, a method of productivity called getting things done, which is uh, related to David Allen and his book, Getting Things Done, The Art of Stress-Free Productivity. First of all, I recommend his book. Uh, I, I want to recommend a piece of software called Todoist. A simple way to describe it would be a strong to-do list manager, although it can be configured to be almost anything you need it to be. I use Todoist to keep track of my projects, the tasks within the projects, the subtasks that go under the, the main task headings. I'm able to tag all my tasks with, the, with anything I want, any kind of metadata I feel like. I mean, I tag it with context, with time required, with the energy that I, level that I have available. So for example, if I am sitting here and it's four o'clock in the afternoon, my time on a Thursday, and I need to get some grading done, what can I do? I don't have to think about these things. I don't have to hold them in my head. I just dump them into Todoist. I can go into Todoist and I can set up a, a search query for grading low energy, <laughs> which is my four o'clock in the afternoon on a Thursday mode. And up will show all the tasks that are available at that time, at that context in the grading scheme. So when I have something that comes across my desk or something that comes across my brain, I just immediately throw it into Todoist and once a week I go through and tag everything. So I never keep anything in my head. <laughs> That's the, the idea behind GTT. Also want to give a shout out to some other tools that I use for getting things done. One is Google Keep. Google Keep is an amazing free piece of software software as part of the Google ecosystem. That's a note-taking software. It's, it's great for sort of passing thoughts because I have an Android phone. If you have an Android phone, you can actually uh, set up uh, voice recognition. So you can go to your phone and just say, okay, Google, make a note to, and then Google will automatically voice transcribe the note and drop it into Google Keep. Mm -hmm. So anything, something comes across your mind, you just talk it into your phone that way, and there it is. And it's there across all platforms. And Todoist is all cross-platform as well. Also want to give a shout out to Evernote, Dropbox, and Google Calendar. You've probably heard of at least two of those three things. Evernote is wonderful. It's for holding anything that isn't a file. So if I clip a web page, that's where it goes. It has a very strong tagging system, so I can tag it with my project that it belongs to, when I found it, where I was, when I found it. So whenever I want to draw up something in the future, I just do a quick search. It has an amazing search feature, and it'll bring things up brilliantly. Dropbox allows me to keep all my files synced across all my devices, and Google Calendar is just, I don't know how people live without Google Calendar. That's all I can say about that. <laughs> so to do is especially, uh, if you haven't checked this out and you're interested in boosting your productivity and keeping track of your stuff a little bit better, highly, highly, highly recommend to do this. I learned something new about you on today's episode. I did not know you were a GTD guy because... I am a serious GTD guy, yes. Now I know who to tap into for episodes when we bring those themes back because it tends to... I was looking... We're actually about to roll out a new 
I was going to say a new version, a new website, a new design of the teaching in higher ed website. And one of the things I'm super excited about is there's a lot more discoverability. You can go and browse through different categories of the episodes to get to just the ones that that you are most interested in. But I was realizing when I talk about productivity, it's almost always just me. I'm like, hmm, probably need to get some other people on the show to talk about these kinds of or my husband and I, uh, Dave, my husband and I, but yeah, it would be great to have you back and, and talking about some of these things too, because it's important. Yeah, I, I think that would be a great conversation as part of a, even as part of a larger conversation about work life balance. I mean, that's a really important issue. And managing your productivity is absolutely essential for maintaining some sort of sanity in your work-life balance, I feel like. That's that's why I did. I mean, I've got three kids, and, and we're really real, real active, and active in our church and community and so forth. And it's like, if I let, I could let teaching take over everything if I didn't have my stuff together, honestly. So I can't do that. Absolutely. Well, I so look forward to future conversations and just want to thank you for your time today. I know you're actually having construction done at your house. (laughs) (laughs) Never ending construction (laughs) on the kitchen. Yes. (laughs) Yes. And I just appreciate also your investment in the teaching in higher ed on the Slack channel. It's been really fun to learn more from you. And I'm just, I just so appreciate all that you give back to higher ed to having us all be more effective in our teaching. Thanks, Bonnie. I appreciate your podcast too. And I appreciate your having me on. It was so great having Robert on the show, and I look forward to having him back. We talked after I stopped recording about him coming back to talk more about productivity tools. And when his book comes out, I just really enjoy getting to learn from him. So thanks again to Robert. And I wanted to mention that the Teaching in Higher Ed website is going to be changing, and there's going to be lots of exciting features for you to go check out once it's there. I talked about it on a prior episode. It's still on its way. But I did want to make a note that oftentimes when people move their websites, it also then, of course, moves the podcast feed. And you may, we're, we're crossing our fingers this doesn't happen, but you may find that in the coming weeks, all of a sudden you have five shows or so show up in your feed that you've already listened to. We're going to do everything we can to avoid that on our end, but it's just a common thing that happens where the feed just can't quite keep up and you might get some duplicate shows that show up in my apologies in advance. I hope that that's not too distracting to your giant ever-growing podcast feed and that you will keep listening. And I just look forward to all of our conversations in future shows. As always, I'd like to encourage you to subscribe to the weekly updates. If you haven't done that yet, you can do that at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. And that'll allow all the show notes to flow into your email once a week and an article written by me on either teaching or productivity. And it'll also get you a copy of the free ed tech guide with 19 tools to help you with both your teaching and productivity. Again, that's at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. And if you want to join that Slack channel and have conversations with people like Robert, you can get in touch with me at teachinginhighered.com slash feedback, and we can get you joined into those conversations as well. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.